Um, I want to share a few thoughts this morning about um, how you're really, really new. I think we hear a lot of teaching um, about, you know, you need to own who you really are. And most of the time when you hear that, they're talking about, you know, own your sins, own your flesh, own the bad stuff you do, you know, get real. You hear stuff like that. I hear sometimes, I even hear believers talk sometimes about, you know, I want to, you know, I want to be real. You know, I, you know, I, I, need, I need someone to talk to about, you know, all my sins and my fears and my faults. I want to be real. And that's, and that's not a bad thing at all to have believers, brothers and sisters sharing their faults one with another, praying for one another, the scripture says, that we, that we may be healed, that the real you might be manifested and that the mind might be renewed to see who we really are. But there's something very, very wrong when we hear teaching that says that the real you, the real, 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 real you has got problems and has got sin and has got an evil heart and God needs to deal with you and you need to deal with your sin. You need to deal with it. Be real. Be real. Okay. I'm so tired of hearing that because Paul would have just freaked out with that kind of teaching. Because the real, the real is an unseen reality that Paul screamed about in all of his letters. He says, know you not that you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ inside of God. You are now seated with him in heavenly places. No, the whole thing. So be aware of this subtle influence from different teachers and preachers out there. Uh, and books that say, you know, you need to be real about yourself. And what they're really saying is you need to, you know, face up to your real being, your real self, which is uh, a person who's really messed up and needs a lot of work. And that's not true. And God was so uh, clear in the Old Testament uh, to show us some types and shadows that we want to talk about today. Um, and again, I'm not saying that we don't have problems, we don't have issues. We all have problems. We all have issues. But we've got to see that it is a, it is a part of the flesh. We must remember that the real me, the real you, is truly holy, blameless, perfect. That we have been raised with Christ. That He is now in us and we are in Him. A great mystery has taken place. But God has circumcised us. The scripture says, by the death of Christ, by the circumcision of Christ, by his death, he has circumcised us and cut away the body of the flesh. We have been released from this creation. It is a spiritual reality. This is what Clark is saying. I love what Clark said last Sunday, and he's going to continue this Sunday. The verses that talk about in the Corinthian letter that who can know the thoughts of God but the spirit of God? See, the natural man, the natural man thinks the things of the Spirit are foolishness. The natural man will default to the seen. The natural man will default to what he sees. And if he sees a person sinning, then he, then he says that person is a sinner. It takes a spiritual mind to say, yeah, he may be sinning now, but he's not a sinner because he's a new creation. And there's a... There's a reality that I cannot see, but there is a, a being inside that earthen vessel that is perfect and holy and blameless because Jesus made it so. Yes. Otherwise, he couldn't be joined to us. But the natural man defaults to the scene. 
But the spiritual man defaults to the unseen. Paul says, look, not on that which is seen, but that which is unseen. And part of our battle, our, our struggle, is to remember the unseen. Remember the truth of what God has revealed to us about what Jesus did. And when we remind ourselves of this truth, awesome things happen on the inside of us. See, that's why Paul had that experience where he couldn't tell whether he was in the body or out of the body. Remember that? He wrote that for us. He goes, I had an experience with God, and I couldn't tell if I was in the body or out of the body, in the body or out of the body. And he saw when he was out of the body, he didn't know if he was actually out of the body or if it was a, oh, God supernaturally let him experience what it's like to be outside of the body. That's why he said, I wasn't sure if I was actually out of the body or just God made me feel like I was out of the body. But when he was out of the body, Paul said he saw all this so clearly that it, it confirmed everything that he was teaching, that the Lord was revealing about the new creation. That's why, see, this thing is very mystical. This thing, this thing is very spiritual. And the natural man does not understand these things. And in our flesh, we tend to want to grasp the, the natural, the seen, the practical. It's not practical for Jesus to say, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's not practical. And yet his words are spirit and they are life. And many walked away and followed him no more because they couldn't hear words of spirit and life. See, you got to ask yourself, do I really want the truth or do I want to just play religious games? I mean, do I really want the truth or do I want to just be a good person? And I don't think there's nobody in this class that wants to just be a good person. I mean, this, this is an awesome class. This whole church is awesome in that people are seeking truth. But I'm telling you, you've got to be willing to hear something from God that is strange. Listen, listen. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. This mystery is great, Paul says. You've got to be prepared to hear something very uh, otherworldly. The scripture says this is not of the world. This, this gospel is not from this earth. It's not from this world. It is from heaven. It is. That's why the scripture says you must have the spirit of God because you can know the thoughts of God unless the spirits tell you what God is thinking and how he sees things. See? And to me it's so exciting because um, God has done something that no other man could do. And he's done it for us. And all we have to do is see it and experience it by simply seeing it and never forget it. You know, that's the whole thing. The two wings of the great eagle of the Holy Spirit is to reveal and to remind, to reveal and remind. And so as things are revealed to us, don't forget to let the Spirit remind us of those things. As the Scripture says, the Spirit shall come and remind us of all that he's taught us. Because a revelation doesn't help if we don't remember it. That's why it's the two wings of the same eagle. The Holy Spirit is sent to reveal and to remind us of what Jesus did. Amen. So I just want to look at a few things that from um, a very awesome scene when the Israelis crossed the river of Jordan. God had, had them do something when they crossed Jordan to go into the promised land that was pretty cool. It's one of the many pictures he has in the Old Testament to, to build our faith in this revelation of the mystery of Christ and his death and his resurrection. So let's take a look at that briefly and uh, we'll see where, where we go from there. <coughs> I guess my main heart 
this morning, but the th- main thing in my heart this morning is to encourage us to see like your dad, to see like your daddy sees. You know, I shared a few months back in the church about how we need to put on daddy's glasses. Put on, put on your dad's glasses and see as he sees. He wants us to see as he sees. Because if we don't see as he sees, we will see as the world sees us. You will adopt a worldly view of who you are as opposed to what God has said. See, that's why Israeli, the Israelis that went into the promised land, the, the 12 spies that were sent in there, 10 said, we are like grasshoppers in their sight. They see us as grasshoppers. We are adopting the view of the giants. We can't win this. Joshua and Caleb said, no, we're not grasshoppers. We are the sons of God, and the Lord is with us. They are bread for us. They saw from God's perspective, and guess who got in the promised land? Joshua and Caleb and the next generation of Israelis. You know what they, I love this verse. I think it's, I can't remember where it is. We could could Google it and find it or use the Strong's Concordance, but an awesome verse where God spoke to this generation that would not go into the promised land because they said, you know, we're like grasshoppers and the giants are bigger than God. And God said to that generation, he said, I will bring your children in, but you won't go in. I will bring your children in. The ones who have no knowledge of good or evil. Cool phrase. God says, I will bring your children in who have no knowledge of good or evil. They're they're immature. They're not not eating off that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of right and wrong. They've moved. They're like children. Like to be as a child, such as the kingdom of heaven is what he was saying. They will trust me because they're not bogged down with with knowledge of good and evil and, and, and rationalizing everything. But they're as children, I will bring them in. And the ones that you said would be prey, P-R-E-Y, a prey, a prey in the promised land, I'll bring them in and they'll inherit it. There's so much meaning in that verse because what God is saying there is that to become childlike and trusting and not be bogged down with the natural way of looking at things, which comes from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we can see who we really are in God by the Spirit and live by the tree of life and not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil if that makes any sense. But I love that verse. It's very deep in meaning. As God, as God says, I'll bring your children in, the ones you said would die. You know, I've heard sometimes people say, you know, you can't teach this grace to children in the faith. You can't teach this grace to young believers. They need to have the law. They need to have, you know, they have some rules. You know, this is, this is stuff for the mature believers get the grace. Um, no. God says, the ones that you think will be a prey, P-R-E-Y, a prey to the grace message, I'll bring them in. Those who have no knowledge of good and evil. Because they see Christ as their all, in all. Isn't that awesome? So cool. Okay. Lord, we just pray that in the next few minutes that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to things perhaps we haven't really seen or or just remind us of things we we have already seen. Be with Clark this morning, Lord, as he opens the scriptures even more about the things that are freely given to us by the Spirit. These things the Spirit has 
has come to show us and reveal to us. Let us not be afraid to believe something wonderful, something even strange and otherworldly. Let us not be afraid to receive the words that are spirit and life. For this is not like religion. This is God. And your ways, Lord, are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your ways different from our ways. Only the Spirit can show us the awesome work that you accomplished in Christ. Help us, Lord, by the Spirit of God to see these things. Encourage my brothers and sisters to see. Help us all see more and more. May this year be the year of great revelation. You said, call unto me and I will answer you. And I will show you great and mighty things that you know not. Great and mighty things that have nothing to do with man. And nothing to do with religion. And nothing to do with the natural. But everything to do with heaven. And heaven's ways. And God's ways. Help us flip the switch, Lord. To the spiritual reality. Amen. Let's take a look at um, Joshua. Book of Joshua, which is right after... Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, right after the first five books of the Scripture. Joshua chapter 4. What's really cool about the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, and the parting of the Jordan, is that they are, in fact, a picture of the same thing. Okay? Understand that this is not like the going out of Egypt through the Red Sea with Israel and then going into the Promised Land through the River Jordan is not like, as some people teach, a second work of grace or a second thing that God is doing in the believer's life. It's the same thing. It means the same thing. But what happened is you had Egypt, say Egypt, and you had the Red Sea and the wilderness. Israel crossed over the Red Sea because they had, remember the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost of the homes after the ten plagues were hit Egypt. Uh, and the ten plagues, by the way, are the ten, were the ten idols that Egyptians worshipped. Everything they worshipped, God judged. They worshipped the sun, they worshipped the cow, they worshipped the Nile. They worshipped, everything they worshipped, God destroyed to show that he was the true God. So the ten plagues are the judgment of God on the ten idols of the world, ten idols of Egypt. But none of them touched, none of the plagues touched the children of Israel who were in the land of Goshen right there next door. When they put the blood on the doorpost of their homes, which is a picture of the lamb's blood, a picture of Christ, and we said this before, but they took hyssop. The Lord says, take hyssop to apply the blood. Hyssop was a very common plant in Egypt. It was like weeds. On the side of the road, you said, hyssop was everywhere. 
That's a picture of how it's not your faith that's the big deal. It's the object of your faith. See? It's the blood of the Lamb that saves us, not your faith. Faith is as, as plentiful as people, people are. God made every person or gave every person the gift of the ability to believe. It's like hyssop. It's everywhere. We're made to believe. Um, just like I wrote one time, fish are made to swim. Birds are made to fly. Human beings are made to believe. Fish can't believe. Animals can't believe. Plants don't believe. Animals have instincts. They can learn. They can respond. But they cannot believe. Only the human being can believe. You believe you have a job tomorrow, so you get dressed and go to work. You believe that this chair will hold you up, so you sit down. You believe. It's part of the human being. And so when the truth comes to us, we have a choice to believe or not believe. So anyway, by using the hyssop, it's a picture of that the issue. It's not faith in our faith. It's faith in him, faith in Christ. So the blood on the doorpost allowed the judgment to pass over Israel, but the judgment hit the firstborn of Egypt. The word Passover actually means, it's, it's a reference to judgment. Judgment passing us over, which is why the Lord's Supper, or the communion we take, which is a fulfillment of what the Passover was a picture of, the very first thing should be in our minds when we take communion and take the bread and take the wine. The very first thing we should remember is we should thank the Lord that judgment has passed us over. Because that's what Passover is. It means when I see the blood, I will pass over the home and the death angel will not touch your family. So when we take the bread and the wine, the true Passover is Christ himself. He is our true Passover. He has taken the judgment for us on the tree, on the cross. So, which is why this is such a horrible teaching that's in the body of Christ now that you, when you take the bread and wine that you're supposed to examine yourself for sin and confess all your sins before you take the bread and the wine. It's horrible because the very first thing you're supposed to remember, as Jesus said, is not our sins, but him, to remember him. This is my body which is broken for you for the forgiveness of all sin. This is my blood which is shed for you for the remission of all sin. So the first thing we are to remember is that he has taken our sin, that he took our judgment. It should be a rejoicing time, not a, a dreadful time. And so many saints are being robbed of the joy of the communion and the joy of the Lord's Supper, the joy of the bread and the wine, the covenant meal, because they're focused on their flesh, on their sin, because they've been taught to do that. But nowhere in the scriptures does the, do the apostles ever teach for us to examine ourselves for sin before we take the cup or drink the, or uh, eat the bread. What Paul does say is examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Is Christ in you? Are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Yeah, examine for sure. Because the Corinthians were having the Lord's Supper and unbelievers were partaking of their agape feast, their love feast, and some were taking of the bread and the wine. And it was, it was having a bad effect on them because they were actually drinking judgment to themselves as an unbeliever taking part in a powerful mystical covenant meal that is only for the body of Christ, there is a bad result, whereas for the believer, it is a place of blessing and healing because you're a believer. It's awesome. Okay, so anyway, so Israel comes through the Red Sea into the wilderness. Now, in the wilderness, God took care of them. They had, he had the water come out of the rock. He had manna. He had the quail come down. He had, they had meat. They had bread. They had water. They had a shade over them. He actually covered them in the hot desert to keep a cool shade in the daytime. At night, that, that cloud became a fire to give them heat when the desert got cold. I mean, he comforted them and took care of them. The scripture says even their shoes didn't wear off, wear thin. That God, in his very presence, preserved everything. It's like his presence fed them and led them and guided them. So in a sense, in a sense, they were in the promised land even here 
You see that? Because they were with God. Because God is the essence of the promised land. He is the promised land, in essence. So even though it was the wilderness, it was a wilderness with God. And any wilderness with God is a promised land. I mean, you have every need met. You know what I'm saying? So what this symbolizes is a time of renewal of the mind. Because God said, I could have taken them directly from here to the promised land here. But he said they would see, he was afraid they would see war and be discouraged. They would see battles and they would be discouraged. They weren't ready to see what they should see. So he had them come here, but it wasn't 40 years. The 40 years only came after they didn't believe. See, this was only going to be a short journey through the wilderness as he was confirming his faithfulness on their way to the promised land. See, now, had they gone in when they first, when the spies were sent in, here's Jordan. Of course, this is up here now north, but say, this is the desert. And here's Israel. Now, here's the Jordan. Imagine these two rivers and push them together into one. In God's mind, crossing the Red Sea into the wilderness and crossing the Jordan into the promised land was like one river. It was one event. And the one event was the death of Jesus. You see that? That's, it's actually one, it's like a, if, if we could bring the two rivers together, this is a parable, and parables are not perfect in terms of, you know, locations of rivers and stuff, but when you see it in the Spirit, you go, oh my gosh. So what happened is that when they brought, when God brought them over the Jordan, it's no, there's no mistake that it was John the Baptist chose the Jordan River to begin his ministry. And that's where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. It's a picture of, of the new kingdom that was coming, the new realm. Now, some people teach that the promised land is heaven, that when we die, we go to the promised land. You know, they even sing songs about, you know, one day we'll go to the promised land, we'll be in heaven. But saints, there's no, there are no giants in heaven to fight. This is not heaven. This is what you have now in Christ, your inheritance. It's the reality of who you are now in Christ. But there are giants in the land. And the giants are the flesh, the world, and the devil. Those three things. The satanic powers, demonic powers, the world, the spirit of the world, and the power of sin in the flesh. You must, we must separate ourselves from those things and see who we really are in this promised land. See, that's what I'm trying to say. This promised land is is a land filled with milk and honey. God says, I have given it to you. Put your foot on it and possess it. I am with you, okay? Now, the way that they, they won the first battle, as we know, Jericho, they simply went around the, the wall seven times and shouted, and then the walls fell because God was speaking about a rest, that he would, do our, he would fight our battles for us if we learn his way of fighting. But this, before we get to that, I want to share this real briefly. Look, if you would, to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4, they're on this side of the Jordan River, about to cross over. And verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Now it came about when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, oh yeah, okay, this actually, chapter 4, verse 1 is when they've already crossed over. Let's back up a little bit. Let's look to, um, look at verse 13, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 13. And it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off 
and the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand in one heap. So it came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests, carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, that the waters which were flowing down from, a, from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. So what happened was the miracle that took place here, when the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant, of course the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Christ, Christ himself, and his authority. As they stepped into the rivers of the Jordan, there was a city called Adam, way upstream, And what happened was the miracle that took place is when they touched the water here, God caused the waters to stop here. And eventually this all dried up. Adam is a clear reference to Adam. And what what God is saying here is that, that the work of Christ, the death of Christ, goes back to Adam. The whole world has been reconciled to God. The past, the present, the future. It's awesome. So what happened? They crossed over the, the Jordan. And look what happens here. This is so cool. Okay, they crossed over. Now look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now it came about when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Take for yourselves 12 men from the, from the people, one man from each tribe. That's important because one man from each tribe means it's the entire nation of Israel being represented. The entire nation of Israel, okay? Which is a reference to the entire believing population in the world from Adam to the end of time. Okay? This is the entire believing population from Adam to the end of time. Verse Three, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan. Now, this Jordan is dry now, and they, they see stones at the bottom of the river. And, the, and Joshua is saying, Take twelve stones, each man from each tribe, and let's see, from the middle of the Jordan, and from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. In other words, carry twelve stones out of Jordan and bring them on the banks of the promised land, bring them into Israel. Verse 4, so Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Go back, and each one of you take up a stone in his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you will say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. And thus the sons of Israel did, as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place, or the resting place, and put them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan, at the place where the feet of the priests were carried, the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they were there to this day. And they are there to this day. I mean, those stones are actually there to this day. I'm sure they're not in a heap anymore because of the water moving. But the actual stones that were put in the middle of the Jordan are still there to this day that they put. Now look at this. This is so cool. Verse 10. For the priests who carried the Ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan, and everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed. And it came about when all the people had finished crossing that the Ark of the Lord and the priests crossed also before the people or with the people. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and half-tribe, they, they continued, they named all the different tribes. 
And then it says that um, when the people came up by the Jordan, let's see, verse, skipping down to verse 23, verse 23, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea. Look at that, verse 23. Just as he did in the Red Sea. This, this verse connects the two events which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God or revere or honor the Lord your God forever. Isn't that awesome? Okay, what is this a picture of? You've got 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan, and you've got 12 stones in the promised land outside of the banks of the Jordan. And it's a picture, in a, one stone for each tribe of Israel. It's a picture of the entire bride of Christ going through death and resurrection. God does not want us to live anymore from this perspective. From this perspective, before we crossed over. Any more than he wants us to live anymore from this perspective before we crossed over here. There's 12 stones that are on the banks of the new promised land is the new man. It's the new creation. Look how God went to great extreme to teach us that you really have died. The bottom of the Jordan. The very river that John the Baptist used to immerse people in to show death, burial, and resurrection. And that we really are on the banks of the promised land now. But it takes a, a, it takes a revelation of the Spirit to really to see this. Okay, let, now let's look at, if you would... To Colossians. Let's look at Colossians. If you would, Colossians chapter 2. Because saints, we really, when we start thinking like God thinks, See, the natural man will say this. The natural man will say, and I think we've said this before, but the natural man will say that an orange tree does not exist until on the branch I see an orange. The natural man says, when I see the orange, then yes, the orange tree exists. Because he focuses on what is seen, which is a manifestation of the orange tree. The orange is a manifestation of orange life. Okay? God says, no, the orange tree existed in the seed. The seed, which is in the invisible orange tree is inside the seed. So what God wants us to do is live in the reality of the unseen, seeing that we are who we are, who he says we are. Now, it may take time for the orange to be manifested because faith to faith, glory to glory, Faith with patience inherits the promises. It takes time for the mind to be renewed so that that life is manifested and we see more and more of who we really are in him manifested. But the real you has happened the moment you were born again. Look at this. Look what happened the moment you were born again. The moment you were born of the Spirit. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse verse 6, I guess. Chapter 2, verse 6. I think... I think Clark even read some of this last Sunday. It's so powerful. Verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him, established in your faith, just as, with you, as you were instructed, overflowing with gratitude. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See, the view that, that you're really not, you're not really, really, really holy, that holiness is a process, is wrong. Or that you're really, really, really not sanctified, that sanctification is a process, is wrong. The scripture is clear that we have been sanctified, past tense, that we are holy now and blameless now, past tense, that God has done something so awesome to make us holy. Otherwise, he cannot be joined to us and we to him. A new creation has come. Now, there is a progressive manifestation of that holiness. There is a progressive manifestation of that sanctification. Yes, that's the orange that's coming on the limb. But the tree exists. If there was no tree, there would be no orange. The very fact that you're getting that fruit is coming forth means that you are in the spirit and in Christ. And if Christ be in you, you're not in the flesh. And you are holy and blameless and beyond reproach, the scripture says. This is what the good news is all about. God did an awesome work in bringing us through death and resurrection so that we are living in him and he in us. Know you not, Paul says, that you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Yes. See, that's, that's, your spirit inside is leaping right now. You're, you're saying, yes, yes. See, that's what we have to feed and be encouraged by. Don't be discouraged by those who say, no, the real you is, you know, the screw-up that messed up last week. No. We all screw up and we all mess up. We all make bad decisions, but that's not the real you. That's why the moment you leave your body, I know this say, I say this all the time, but the moment you leave your body, when you die, when the body dies, because you'll never die. Jesus, Jesus said you'll never die. You've already passed from death and into life. You, as a person, will never die. You have eternal life now. You are now in life now. You'll never die. Just like Jesus said, you'll never die. But your body will. My body will die. When your body dies, the real you will be absent from the body and present with the Lord with exceeding joy, unspeakable glory. Why? Because of who you are now. Now. Which is mean, that's why you walk by faith in this reality, even though we don't see ourselves manifesting perfectly who we really are. Because in this body, we see in part, we prophesy in part, we manifest in part. Because we're working through brains and tissue and bodies of this creation. But you are not of this creation anymore. You once were from below, you are now from above. It's awesome. This is the reality of the new creation. The new creation is real. It's so real. God sees the new creation more real than the physical. He recognizes you as a new creation more than he recognizes the body. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. God doesn't have any relationship with you in the flesh. He relates to you as Jacob, not as Esau. He relates to you as Israel, your true name, not Esau. That's not who you are. You, your old man, are 12 stones at the bottom of the Jordan River. And your new new is twelve or twelve stones in the promised land on the banks where you lodge and rest, and the land filled with milk and honey. You see it? All right, look at this. This is so cool. Look at verse eight or verse nine. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete. See, why is Paul saying this? Because they were people were nipping at the Christians' belief that they were really complete. So he starts off with Christ, and he says, Christ, that man, the Son of the living God, all the fullness of God dwelt bodily in him. And what he did for you was to put you in him, and now you are also complete in him. See, see what Paul's saying? 
And in Him you have been made complete. Verse 10. And He is the head over all rule and all authority. So don't listen to any other word that says you're not complete in Him because you are. And there's no rule or no authority above Him. Look at verse 11. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is a great mystery. This is, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the might of man. What God has done, has prepared for those who love Him, those who respond to this awesome truth, they can see it. Just as you you and I here, and the inner man is here, both soul and spirit, the inner man, the invisible, this is the visible, this is the invisible. God, by the death of Christ, through your faith in Jesus, by when He died on the tree, He took on flesh and blood so that He could... Put an end to sin in the body, the scripture says. That he could cut the body away from us. His body, Hebrews 10 says, was actually the true veil. The veil was a picture of the body of Christ. When he died on the tree, when he died on the cross, when he says it is finished and died, the veil was rent in the middle. The moment he lost his life on earth, when he died, the veil was rent in half so that we could pass over to the Holy of Holies. This person, when you believe what happens, God repeats what happened on the cross in time and space. Space that because he offered himself up by the eternal spirit for Adam all the way to the end of time. But when you believe in time and space, an awesome miracle takes place, a mystery takes place. He cuts away the body of the flesh and you pass over into the kingdom of the beloved son. And that's the real you. Look at this. This is so awesome. For we have been translated past tense from the kingdom of this darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. Let's wrap this up. This is so cool. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, 12 stones on the bottom of the Jordan River, in which you were also raised up with him through faith, 12 stones on the banks of the promised land, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions, when I was in my flesh, and I was dead in my transgressions, and the uncircumcision of of my flesh, the uncircumcision of my flesh, the uncircumcision of my flesh, see, joined to the flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which is the law, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He took the law and nailed it to the cross. He had disarmed, verse 15, disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed them. He disarmed the ones who are saying to you, you're not good, you're not perfect, you're not complete, because they're basing it on law. God says, no, I disarmed them with that that weapon. The law is Satan's weapon of first choice. And he disarms Satan with the law, nailing it to the cross because of his awesome work of creating you new in him. And now he has all rule and all authority and you are complete in him. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to a festival or a new moon or the Sabbath day. All these rules and laws, things which were a shadow of what is to come. For the substance belongs to Christ. Isn't that awesome? By the Holy Spirit, we are seeing this. Only the Spirit can show us the thoughts of God. So remember, saints, next time you feel like you are one with your sin, remember that you're one with Him. Recognize the power of sin in our mortal body. The apostles taught that the power of sin is in our members. 
in our members that works against the real you. Law stimulates the power of flesh. Paul says law stimulates the power of flesh. Law is not a faith. What is law? What am I saying there? I'm saying if you're trying to be what you already are, faith is nullified and the flesh flourishes. If you're trying to be what, you're al- what you already are, there's no faith in that. Flesh will flourish. The power of sin will flourish. It's stimulated, actually. It's stimulated. But if you believe what he has done, out of your innermost being, Jesus said, rivers of living water will flow from the new, the new you. And those waters will be the power of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. That's the life. As you received him, walk in him the same way. You received him by simple faith, by grace through faith. Every day we walk by grace through faith. As you received him, walk in him, being rooted and grounded in the reality of the seed. Letting the roots go down deep, the reality of the unseen. And let the, being built up in him that we might bear much fruit in this rest. Twelve stones at the bottom of the Jordan, that's you. Twelve stones at the bottom at the, at the, on the promised land, that's you. That's us. No, you're not. You have died and your life has been hidden with Christ and God. I've got to read this one more. Real quick. Chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Same book. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated after the right hand of God. At the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Woo! Lord, thank you so much for showing us these things. When you are revealed, then we shall be revealed with such glory that the world will say, Oh my God, they were the sons and daughters of the living God the whole time. The whole time. They were His sons and daughters the whole time. How can these things be? They can be because with God, nothing shall be impossible. Amen.